for God, our zeal can be misplaced. And for a lot of people, their doubts and issues with Christianity is actually not about Jesus. It's about somebody who follows Jesus and their zeal for Jesus is a little bit misplaced. And so when I read things like this, I start to ask myself, Lord, where's my blind spots in this? Where do I assume that someone's motives are malicious rather than asking Maybe you've been someone who's been burned by the church. Someone had a strong conviction about something, so they made an assumption about you, but didn't come to you to verify the facts. They just assumed you were guilty and wanted to have you condemned without a fair trial. This can happen within the church for sure. Today, Pastor Daniel explains how this happened within the tribes of Israel and how damaging it can be for all. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Joshua chapter 22 as he continues his message, Returning East. Information is at our fingertips, and we have more information than we would ever know what to do with. But for many of us, we have all this information, but we're not doing it, right? How many of you know how to get out of debt? Now, I'm not going to ask to say how many of you are in debt, right? How many of you know how to be super thin? How many of us are super thin? It's like all these things. How many of us know how to have an amazing marriage or to have an amazing relationship? All of us. But how do we do it? See, it's about where you live. So the key for us is not just to know stuff. See, that's the problem in our days. Everyone knows so much, but people don't know how to be gracious and kind. We have all sorts of information. We can access information across the world, but we don't know how to love people self-sacrificially. We don't have joy in the midst of circumstances. See, we have majored in the minors. And listen, I'm not knocking information. I'm not a guy who's buried my head in the sand. I love all the information. But what, I, what Jesus keeps doing, he keeps coming back to this. Daniel, I want you to live out what you know. I want you to put feet on your faith. I don't want you to be content to say, I know all this stuff and I'm super smart. I read all these books. But I want you to live this stuff out. Where the rubber meets the road at street level, where life happens. So take care that you do the commandments and the law. That's why we've been studying this stuff. Now, not only that, to love the Lord your God. You notice that in the middle of five? Now, I love that. It's not enough just to do the right things dutifully. God's not content with us just to dutifully do the right things, but we obey God. Why? Because we love God. When they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 8, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I call it upward, inward, and outward. Right? Jesus said, this is the most important thing. Right? So God isn't just content with us being dutiful. He wants that desire for obedience to his stated purposes and plans to lead us into a relationship that is real, that is based on love. And we know that, of course, he, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. First John four nineteen. You might want to tattoo that on your heart. Get a heart tattoo with first John four nineteen. Now, not only that, it says next to walk 
in all of his ways. Right? So not only to keep his commandments, now you're going to walk in his ways. God wants us to catch his personality as we move through life. You know, I, I always love watching when people become friends, how people become conformed to be like other people. Isn't it true? Like you meet somebody and you start spending time with them and you start taking on the things that they say. Like I remember this from you. So I'm all Italian from New Jersey and my wife, you know, she's an angel. If you know my wife, Lynn, she's amazing. And I remember I used to come home from work, you know, and I would walk in, I'd give her a hug and say, how you doing? She said, Daniel, how's your heart? Right? Now listen, I'm from New Jersey. So like, I'd never say something like that, you know? And so I would always answer her because I'm from New Jersey kind of sarcastically because where I grew up, like sarcasm is a love language, right? So I say, oh, you know, it's a little left center in my chest is beating, you know, about 70 beats a minute, a little faster because you're around. And she would be like, you know what I mean? And what was funny is I didn't know what she meant, but it was funny. We've been married for about a month. And I remember I went to church one day and I saw someone like, hey, how's your heart? I was like, where did I get that from? You know, it's like my wife coming out of my mouth. And here's the thing. When you are obedient to the commandments of God and you love God, then you want to walk in the way that God walks. You want your presence in the world to have the same fragrance as Jesus had when he was in the world. See, it's not just about the things that you dutifully obey or even the things you love. It becomes an all-encompassing holistic way of living that we walk in his ways to keep his commandments. And then we hold fast to him. Joseph, we don't hold fast to his, the religion that is built around. We hold fast to him himself personally. I always think of Mary Magdalene. Remember when Jesus revealed himself to her right after the resurrection? I always love the fact that Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostles. Right? Jesus revealed himself to her, and he's like, go tell my friends. And she was holding on to him, clinging to him. And he's like, hey, listen, woman, like, I haven't yet said it yet. Like, let me go. You know? I don't think he was mad at her, but she clung on to him, hold on to him. Listen, for some of you right now, with what's going on in your world, you need to hold on to the Lord right now. I think there's some of you right now that one of the reasons you're having such issues right now is that you haven't been clinging on to him. You're allowing all the distractions and all the things that are going on in your life to distract your gaze and distract your attention and distract your energy from holding tightly to the Lord. Because listen, Jesus will get you where you need to be. So we have to hold tight unto him. And notice this, the last little phrase in verse five, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Remember Moses, the servant of the Lord? Now it's like, don't just serve him like with your leftovers. You serve him with the totality of who you are. Now, can I just say this? The principle of the first fruits is the idea that because God is the source and the sustainer and the creator of everything, that God deserves the first of everything, right? And here's what I want to tell you. You need to give God the first fruits of your energy as well. See, for what most people do, is they say, I'm going to schedule my whole weekend. If I have anything left over, I'll go serve Jesus. I'll go show up for kids ministry. I'll do second Saturday. I'll go help my neighbor. I'll do this. But you know what the problem is? That's all upside down. See, what you need, you need to prioritize serving the Lord. You need to say, 
I'm going to design the way that I expend my energy during the week by saying, this is how I'm going to serve Jesus first. In the same way with your finances, most people are like, look, I'm going to pay all my bills and then whatever's, if I have anything left, I'll give it to the Lord. It's all backwards. You honor God with the first fruits because he's God. And the only reason you have anything is because of him. And then you order everything else after it. And the one thing that's not meant to be arbitrary is God. But for many of us, that's the way we live our lives. God is arbitrary. It's flexible. It's driven by margin. When really it's supposed to be structural and foundational. Driven by principle. God always gets the first fruits. And I love this. Don't just serve him a little bit. Don't be like, well, it's VBS and they bugged me long enough. So I'm going to serve in VBS. It's like, man, I can't wait to serve. I can't wait to be involved in what God is doing in people's lives. And I prioritize that. You know, I was just talking to someone from the Crossroads family just recently, and they were telling me, and I was so blessed by this. They're like, listen, you know, at the beginning of every year, we look at the Crossroads mission trips, and then we plan our vacation. So one of the weeks of my paid vacation, I go on a mission trip. We figure that out first, and then we figure out the next thing, our vacation time. And I'm like, now that is kingdom living right there. Saying, my paid vacation, I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'm going to let my company pay for me to go and serve people in Jesus' name. And unfortunately, very few people live that way today. I'm surprised. Because it says things like, serve them with all your heart, with all your soul, with all that you are. And then I love this, Joshua in verse 6. So Joshua blessed them, and he sent them away, and they went to their tents. I love this. Joshua blessed them. He's like, in the name of the Lord, be blessed. Take your leave. And then they left. Now, look at what it says next. In verse 7, it tells us this. It says, now to half the tribe of Manasseh, Moses gave a possession in Bashan. And to the other half of it, Joshua gave possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very special clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. And so the Children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Now, first we see, again, a reminder that the tribe of Manasseh was split. So one half was going to the east side, the other half was staying on the west side. And we are reminded that they returned with much spoil. Now you have to realize, I mean, it'd be easy to read that and say, okay, they have all these, these things that they have. But you have to remember that some 50 years ago, they were slaves in Egypt. And remember when they left Egypt, the Egyptians were just giving them things. And then they wander in the wilderness, then they move into the promised land, and now they have all sorts of resources. Because when we walk with the Lord, God is a great provider. Now, I think what's also I just want to make the point is, I don't want to belabor it, of course, is the fact here that they departed from the children of Israel in Shiloh. 
Now, Shiloh was a city that was in the hill country of Ephraim, and Shiloh was selected as the place of worship. By the time you get into the book of 1 Samuel, Eli, the high priest, is dwelling in Shiloh. So they ended up settling, and the tabernacle of meeting was in Shiloh up until the time of David when Jerusalem became that center. And then under Solomon, the temple was built in Jerusalem. So Shiloh was the center of worship for the children of Israel. And the people here are departing to their land from that area of Shiloh. It says this now in verse 10. It says, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Caden, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great and impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Wait, what? You guys see what just happened? The two and a half tribes are finally going back to their land. And as they get to the Jordan River, now you have to realize the Jordan River was a very important line of demarcation for the children of Israel. And they got to the Jordan and then these two and a half tribes, they built an altar there. And we don't know why they built the altar, but they built an altar. We're going to find out why in a second. They built this altar and right away the other nine and a half tribes heard about it and they said, Oh no, and they want to go to war. Now you have to realize, these are folks who have been battle weary. They've been at war for seven years, securing the promised land. And now the two and a half tribes go away. They've been blessed. They fulfilled their commitment. And then they build an altar. And all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, we got a problem. Now, isn't that how life works? Right? It's like you spend your entire life trying to finish up school and then you can't get a job. Right? Or you get a job that you've been doing all this training and then you get a job and then you get there. You're like, I hate my job. Right? It's like you get there and all of a sudden you think it's done and we're finished. And all of a sudden now they thought that they were done with going to war. Now they think they have to go to war against two and a half tribes because they are building an altar to worship on that isn't the one that God prescribed. So right there, almost right away, you hit a crisis point. What is going on? So look at what happens. In verse 13, it says, Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, verse 13, the son of Eliezer, the priest to the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, and with him ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of each tribe of Israel, and each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke to them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, and that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity... Verse 17, of Peor, not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. 
and it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So now we find exactly what the nine and a half tribes are thinking. Now, they put together a delegation. Remember, there's nine and a half tribes there. So, ten rulers from each of the ten tribes. There's nine and a half, so there's really, you know, some of the, half the tribe of Manasseh is there. And also, we find here that Phineas, the son of Eliezer, who's the high priest, they go there and they want to confront them about what is going on. And right away, they charge them with treachery. They committed evil against the Lord, it says in verse 16. They're turning away from following the Lord because they built themselves an altar that they might rebel against the Lord. Now, here's the thing right away. I want you to notice something. The nine and a half tribes, although maybe justified, they automatically took the two and a half tribes at their worst possible motives. Now, here's the thing. This is something we have to be careful of. Because... If you always ascribe to everyone their worst possible motives, you'll have a reason to be angry with everybody. And we have to be careful with this because oftentimes we misrepresent people's hearts, not because it's really their heart. They don't ask, they assume. And because they assume that these tribes are desiring to rebel against God and worship other gods and not trust God, they want to go to war with them. And I'm here to tell you, a lot of times the reason there is conflict in relationships is because we assume and ascribe the worst possible motives without asking. And here's the thing I want to always tell you. You want good, biblical ways to deal with people? Always ask, never assume. Ask them what their intentions are. See, because we have a tendency in our followers to always think that everyone is the worst possible version of themselves. How many times has anyone ever assumed that your motives are awful and really you're just trying to do something nice? Almost all of us, right? Like your intentions are right. You're trying to help them and they take it all the wrong way. Now, I'm going to tell you, listen, what I also realize is that when things happen publicly, as somebody who I do ministry publicly, some of the things that people say that my motives are, I'm like, really? I mean, you think I woke up and thought like that this morning? Like, that's the plan. But what happens is if people want to not give you the benefit of the doubt, if they want to assume that you're the worst possible version of yourself, then in their mind, you will be, even if you're not. See, the nine and a half tribes were very concerned for legitimate reasons, but they jumped to conclusions. And because they jumped to a conclusion, a war and a skirmish almost broke out. But we're going to find that this isn't actually what they were thinking. But in going there, at least they didn't just go right to war. I mean, praise God for Phineas, the high priest, for facilitating this delegation to go. And really what they do is they remind them of the holiness of God. They also go through a number of the areas of apostasy in the life of the children of Israel. Things that had gone on that had gone wrong. Right? Like the iniquity of Peor. You know, you can read about that in Numbers chapter 25. 
You know, with the whole thing with Balaam and Balak and all that that went on. They bring up the sin of Achan, the son of Zerah. That's in Joshua chapter 7. When they took the accursed things. They keep going and they keep reminding them and saying, listen, you're turning away. You're building this altar. And they're saying, look, if you think the land on the east side of the Jordan is unclean, then come back over and be in the promised land. But what you're doing is an abomination of God. Now, to not just describe completely negative motives to the nine and a half tribes, what is beautiful here is that they do have a passion for God's holiness. But what we also see here is that sometimes your heart can be in the right place and the way you're going about it is all wrong too. So you see, I mean, I love the Bible because the Bible, it's really about God, but we see people in the light of God. And so, like, for the nine and a half tribes, they're passionate for God and for God's holiness, but their response is actually outside of the long-suffering nature of God. They just assume that they're apostatizing, that they're leaving the faith, when really what you're going to find is that they're actually not doing that at all. So sometimes even in our passion for God, our zeal can be misplaced. And for a lot of people, their doubts and issues with Christianity is actually not about Jesus. It's about somebody who follows Jesus and their zeal for Jesus is a little bit misplaced. And so when I read things like this, I start to ask myself, Lord, where's my blind spots in this? Where do I assume that someone's motives are malicious rather than asking and verifying? Where in my zeal for Jesus can I live out my faith in a way that is actually misplaced? That my passion for God can actually put me in a misplaced... See, those are kind of questions that people don't often ask, but if you do, you'll actually learn a lot about yourself and a lot of other people. You know, I'll be honest with you, as a married man, the number of times Lynn and I check in on why things happened has increased with each passing year. Because when we were newly married, I mean, when you're first married, you assume that everything your spouse does is because they love you to the moon and back. And whenever the honeymoon period ends, and that's different times for different people, then you automatically go to everything that they're doing is the worst possible thing they could be thinking about. Right. And really, there's a course correction back to where I what I started to realize is that I don't know Lynn's motives unless I ask. And I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. But in the things when there's a gap between experience and expectation, all of us fill that gap with something. Do you know what that's like? When there's something that you're expecting to happen, but your experience is different, it creates a gap. Now, here's the thing. Each one of us fill that gap with either trust or suspicion. And if you fill that gap with suspicion, suspicion and accusation is actually what Satan peddles in and it destroys relationships. If you fill that gap with trust, trust is what God peddles in and you build up a relationship. You see right here, what the nine and a half tribes expected and what we're going to find what the two and a half tribes expected and what they experienced, there was a gap. The nine and a half tribes filled it with suspicion and they almost end up at war. So you got to ask yourself, what are you filling the gap with? When something you expect and what you experience, when there's a difference, what do you fill that gap with? And you choose that. Nobody chooses that for you. You choose that. But whatever you put in that gap, you will reap a harvest of whatever that is. Jesus is real. How sad that some assumptions made in this chapter almost led to a war within the tribes of Israel. 
Sometimes people don't get the details right, and they take action toward correcting something that maybe wasn't fully seen accurately. This was the case within the tribes, and it can easily happen in your life with others too. Today's teaching is a lesson in getting the full picture rather than assuming a person's motives. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I'm so stoked you're a listener of Jesus' Real Radio, and I know Jesus has amazing plans for you. I'd love to hear the story of how God's working in your life. Give us a call here at Jesus' Real Radio at 360-256-4655 or email me at real at danielfusco.com. We're so glad we can be a part of your life through the ministry of Jesus' Real Radio. Would you like to be a part of what we're doing? We would like to ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this program. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be used to reach people with the gospel message. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Just click on Give. Thank you for partnering with us. Thanks for joining us as Pastor Daniel has been covering the book of Joshua in this series. Joshua was a strong leader, having been an apprentice of Moses and then leading the nation of Israel in conquering the land God had given them. Coming up, Pastor Daniel will share what Joshua had to say to the people as his life was coming to an end. Joshua does a good job of reminding the people what God had done. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus Is Real Radio.